Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikwe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. Today is uh, Saturday, uh, June 24th, uh, 2023. Uh, We are broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. We would like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to another edition of our program. Later on, uh, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on a reversal of a purported armed mutiny uh, by the Wagner Group and the Russian Federation. Tunisian prosecutors have blocked the release of an opposition figure. We have details on that as well. People in Sierra Leone and West Africa have participated in a national presidential elections. And Malians have voted on a draft constitution aimed at ending military rule. In the second hour, we look back on the 60th anniversary of the Detroit Walk to Freedom, where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his first I Have a Dream speech. Finally, we review the Motown Review uh, tour of the United Kingdom uh, during 1964 as part of our recognition of Black Music Month. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program, so stay tuned. And our initial uh, Black Music Month focus will be on the legendary uh, South African uh, vocalist Brenda Fossey. Uh, Brenda Nkuzoli Fossey uh, was born in Langa, in Cape Town on November 3rd, 1964. She was the youngest of nine children. She was named after the American singer, Brenda Lee. Her father died when she was only two years old. Uh, With the help of her mother, a pianist, she soon started earning money by singing for tourists. Uh, When she was 16 years old, in 1981, she received a visit by Heinrich Kulo Robano. As a result, she left Cape Town for Johannesburg to seek her fortune as a singer. She first joined the vocal group, Joy, filling in for one of the members who was on maternity leave, and later became the lead singer for a Townsend music group called Brenda and the Big Dudes. She had a son, uh, of course, uh, during that period. And, of course, uh, she was also uh, involved in politics. Uh, she enjoyed tremendous popularity inside South Africa, She also used her music to oppose the apartheid regime in South Africa. In 1989, she released the song Black President, which we'll hear a little bit later on, as a tribute uh, to uh, Nelson Mandela, uh, who uh, was on the verge of being released as a political prisoner and later uh, was the first African democratically elected president of the Republic of South Africa. Known best for her songs Weekend Special and Too Late for Mama, Fosse was dubbed the Madonna of the Township uh, by Time Magazine in 2001. Uh, she died uh, in 1995. And let's listen uh, to uh, the music uh, of the legendary Brenda Fossey. Yo mo no 
Yeah, I'm 
casa,
Oh, my God. 
Welcome back. And that was the legendary uh, Brenda Fossey. And uh, just to uh, clarify, uh, Brenda Fossey released that uh, track in 1990 after the release of uh, Nelson Mandela uh, from 27 and a half years of incarceration under the apartheid system uh, that was in existence at that time in the Republic of South Africa. She made her transition in 2004, uh, right before her 40th birthday. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a special Pan-African Journal worldwide radio broadcast. And uh, today is Saturday, June 24th, uh, 2023. And uh, we're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. And of course, uh, we want to uh, emphasize that this is uh, Black Music Month. And uh, that was a tribute uh, to uh, the legendary Brenda Fossey of the Republic of South Africa. Right now, we want to move uh, into our Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. And these are some of the headlines in today's uh, Pan-African Newswire. A criminal case against Wagner private military company founder Yevgeny Pergosin uh, will be dropped. That's according to Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov. Uh, he told this to the international press. You will ask me what will happen to Pogosin himself. A criminal case against him will be dropped while he will go to Belarus, the criminal official said. That said, uh, Russian President uh, Vladimir Putin guarantees that Pogosin will be able to leave Russia for Belarus. If you're asking me what are the guarantees that Pogosin can go to Belarus, that's the word of the Russian President Peskov stressed. On June 23rd, uh, several audio recordings were posted of Pogosin's telegra- on Pogosin's tele- telegram channel. Uh, he particularly claimed that his forces had come under attack, which he blamed on the country's military authorities. In this regard, the Federal Security Service, the FSB, launched a criminal investigation into calls uh, for armed mutiny. The Russian Defense Ministry slammed the allegations of a strike on the Wagner's EMC's rear camps as fake news. The FSB warned Wagner's fighters against following Pogosin's orders and called on them to detain him. Putin, in a televised address to the nation early this morning, described the to take tough measures against the mutineers. In the evening, Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko, in coordination with President Putin, held talks with Pogosin working out a plan on de-escalating the situation. Later, Pogosin said that the Wagner PMC was halting the movement of his convoys, turning them around, and returning uh, to field camp. Lukashenko's mediating efforts uh, were due to his long acquaintance with Pogosin. And uh, if you want to uh, get more information uh, on uh, the situation in the Russian Federation, just log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire. In other news, in West Africa, Malians have approved the draft of a new constitution submitted by the junta in power. Uh, They've been in power since 2020. Uh, The referendum uh, for the new constitution passed in a 97% uh, electorate. The electoral authority said in Bamako yesterday, that's according to provisional 
election results. The military has made the draft constitution an essential cornerstone in the rebuilding of Mali, which is facing widespread jihadism and a deep multifaceted crisis. The ballot was marred by incidents of and irregularities, according to observers and opponents of the reform. The electoral body announced that the turnout was 39.4%. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. Major state prosecutor yesterday appealed against a judge's decision to release opposition figure Shaima Issa uh, for four months after she was detained for plotting against the state According to her lawyers, Issa would have walked free following a decision taken by the counterterrorism court, but the prosecution appealed against it. They, the public prosecutor, have appealed. Why? I can't explain it, but it's politics, too. It wasn't the public prosecutor who decided to appeal on his own initiative. On the contrary, he's there under orders. So we have to find out why there was this order and this counterorder. In fact, it's a sign of an instability in Tunisia. That was according to Ahmed Najib Shibi, president of the National Salvation Front. A member of Tunisia's main opposition coalition, the National Salvation Front, was arrested along with some 20 other opposition members, media and business figures, back in February. And finally, uh, voters in Sierra Leone were deciding earlier today whether to give President Julius Mahada Bio, a second term amid high unemployment and growing concern about the state of the West African nation's economy. A dozen candidates uh, hoped to unseat Bio. The experts predicted his main competition likely would be Sumura Kamara, uh, the head of the All People's Congress Party. In 2018, the presidential election, Bio beat Kamara in a runoff by a margin of less than five percentage points. To win in the first round of voting and avoid a runoff, the top contender must secure 55% of the vote. Bio has faced increasing criticisms because of debilitating economic conditions that Kamara pledged uh, to improve. Nearly 60% of Sierra Leone's population of more than 7 million are facing poverty, with youth unemployment being one of the highest in West Africa. With that, that we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire uh, segment of the Pan-African Journal. Uh, in concluding the Pan-African Newswire segment, we'd like to remind our listeners the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, all you need to do is go uh, to our website, and that's at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast for Saturday, June 24th, uh, 2023, uh, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. Uh, We'll be back with more of our program for this week. 
Welcome back, and that's the music of uh, Funkadelic. Uh, 
track entitled Super Stupid, uh, taken from the classic uh, 1971 album entitled Maggot Brain. And uh, today is the 60th anniversary of the Detroit Walk to Freedom, uh, which was held on June 23rd of 1963 in the city of Detroit. And it was the, up until that time, the largest uh, gathering and demonstration for uh, African-American civil rights uh, in the United States. And uh, the recording of the address that was delivered by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. at Cobo Hall in Detroit on June 23rd of 1963 was later released uh, by Motown Records. Of course, Motown Records founded here in the city of Detroit uh, in the late 90s, uh, became a tremendous force in popular music uh, during the 1960s and 70s. And uh, this uh, was, of course, one of the major contributions uh, made by uh, Motown Records, among others. And uh, we're going to listen to uh, this address uh, entitled I Have a Dream, uh, which was delivered two months prior to the March on Washington's version of I Have a Dream. Uh, This address uh, by Dr. King, of course, in my opinion, was more militant and more analytical and more thorough uh, than the um, 16-minute speech delivered in Washington, D.C. This speech is uh, 35 minutes long, and um, that day uh, was historic in the city of Detroit. Uh, The march, of course, organized by the Reverend C.L. Franklin of the Bethel Baptist Church, uh, Reverend Albert Clegg of the then Central Congregational Church, uh, James Del Rio, an educator, real estate uh, person, uh, later a state representative and judge in the city of Detroit, uh, McFall, who was a leading businessman uh, in the city of Detroit, and many others uh, who were in the leadership and those who organized and brought out the hundreds of thousands uh, who marched in the city of Detroit 60 years ago today. Let's listen to this historic speech. And now, my friends, let the trumpets sound, let the bells ring, let the drums roll, lay out the red carpet. Here he comes, America's beloved freedom fighter, Martin Luther King. Ladies and gentlemen, 
I cannot begin to say to you this afternoon how thrilled I am. And I cannot begin to tell you the deep joy that comes to my heart as I participate with you in what I consider the largest and greatest demonstration for freedom ever held in the United States. assure you that what has been done here today will serve as a source of inspiration for all of the freedom-loving people of this nation. Dr. King, you have to stand above us. I think that is something else that must be said because it is a magnificent demonstration of discipline. With all of the thousands and hundreds of thousands of people engaged in this demonstration today, there has not been one reported incident of violence. I think this is a magnificent demonstration of our commitment to nonviolence in this struggle for freedom all over the United States, and I want to commend the leadership of this community for making this great event possible and making such a great event possible through such disciplined channels. September the 22nd, 1862, to be exact, a great and noble American, Abraham Lincoln, signed an executive order, which was to take effect on January the 1st, 1863. This executive order was called the Emancipation Proclamation. And it 
served to free the Negro from the bondage of physical slavery. But 100 years later, the Negro in the United States of America still isn't free. But now, more than ever before, America is forced to grapple with this problem, for the shape of the world today does not afford us the luxury of an anemic democracy. And the price that this nation must pay for the continued oppression and exploitation of the Negro or any other minority group is a price of its own destruction, for the hour is late. The clock of destiny is ticking out, and we must act now before it is too late. The events of Birmingham, Alabama, And the more than 60 communities that have started protest movements since Birmingham are indicative of the fact that the Negro is now determined to be free. For Birmingham tells us something in glaring terms. It says first that the Negro is no longer willing to accept racial segregation in any of its dimensions. We have come to see that segregation is not only sociologically untenable, it is not only politically unsound, it is morally wrong and sinful. <laughs> segregation is a cancer in the body politic which must be removed before our democratic health can be realized. <laughs> Segregation is wrong because it is nothing but a new form of slavery covered up with certain niceties of complexity. Segregation is wrong because it is a system of adultery perpetuated by an illicit intercourse between injustice and immorality. And in Birmingham, Alabama, and all over the South and all over the nation, 
We are simply saying that we will no longer sell our birthright of freedom for the mess of segregated pottage. In a real sense, we are through with segregation now, henceforth, and forevermore. something else. They reveal to us that the Negro has a new sense of dignity and a new sense of self-respect. For years, I think we will all agree that probably the most damaging effect of segregation been what it has done to the soul of the segregated as well as the segregator. It has given the segregator a false sense of in, uh, superiority, and it has left the segregated with a false sense of inferiority. So because of the legacy of slavery and segregation, many Negroes lost faith in themselves and many felt that they were inferior, but then something happened to the Negro. Circumstances made it possible and necessary for him to travel more. The coming of the automobile, the upheavals of two world wars, the Great Depression, and so his rural plantation background gradually gave way to urban industrial life. And even his economic life was rising through the growth of industry. The influence of organized labor expanded educational opportunities. And even his cultural life was rising through the steady decline of crippling illiteracy. And all of these forces conjoined to cause the Negro to take a new look at himself. Negro masses. Negro masses all over began to reevaluate themselves. The Negro came to feel that he was somebody. His religion revealed to him. His religion revealed to him that God loves all of his children and that all men are made in his image and that figuratively speaking, every man from a base black to a treble white is significant on God's keyboard.
Negro could now unconsciously cry out with eloquent poet, fleecy locks and black complexion cannot forfeit nature's claim. Skin may differ, but affection dwells in black and white the same. Were I so tall as to reach the pole, or to grasp the ocean at a span, I must be measured by my soul. The mind is the standard of the man. But these events that are taking place in our nation tell us something else. They tell us that the Negro and his allies in the white community now recognize the urgency of the moment. I know we have heard a lot of cries saying, slow up and cool off. We still hear these cries. They are telling us over and over again that you're pushing things too fast, and so they're saying, cool off. Well, the only answer that we can give to that is that we've cooled off all too long, and that is the danger. There's always the danger if you cool off too much that you will end up in a deep freeze. Well, they're saying you need to put on brakes. The only answer that we can give to that that the motor's now cranked up and we're moving up the highway of freedom toward the city of equality. And we can't afford to stop now because our nation has a date with destiny. We must keep moving. Then that is another cry. They say, why don't you do it in a gradual manner? Well, gradualism is little more than escapism and do-nothingism, which ends up in standstillism. We know that our brothers and sisters in Africa and Asia are moving with jet-like speed toward the goal of political independence. And in some communities, we are still moving at halt and burger pace toward the gaining of a hamburger and a cup of coffee at a lunch counter. So we must say now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to transform this pending national elegy into a creative psalm of brotherhood. Now is the time to lift our nation. 
Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of racial justice. Now is the time to get rid of segregation and discrimination. Now is the time. So this social revolution taking place can be summarized in three little words. They are not big words. One does not need an extensive vocabulary to understand them. They are the words all here now. We want all of our rights. We want them here and we want them now. This is the moment. thing that we must see about this struggle is that by and large it has been a nonviolent struggle. Let nobody make you feel that those who are engaged or who are engaging in the demonstrations in communities all across the South are resorting to violence. These are few in number. We've come to see the power of nonviolence. We've come to see that this method is not a weak method. For it's the strong man who can stand up amid opposition, who can stand up amid violence being inflicted upon him and not retaliate with violence. You see, this method has a way of disarming the opponent. It exposes his moral defenses. It weakens his morale, and at the same time, it works on his conscience. And he just doesn't know what to do. If he doesn't beat you, wonderful. If he beats you, you develop the quiet courage of accepting blows without retaliating. If he doesn't put you in jail, wonderful. Nobody with any sense likes to go to jail. But if he puts you in jail, you go in that jail and transform it from a dungeon of shame to a haven of freedom and human dignity. tries to kill you, you develop then a conviction that there are some things so dear, some things so precious, some things so eternally true that they are worth dying for. And I submit to you that if a man has not discovered something that he will die for, he isn't fit to live. <laughs> this method has wrought wonders. It's a result of the nonviolent freedom ride movement. Segregation in public transportation has almost passed away absolutely in the South. As a result of the sit-in movement at lunch counters, more than 200 
and 85 cities have now integrated their lunch counters in the South. I say to you, there's power in this method. I think by following this approach, it will also help us to go into the new age that is emerging with the right attitude. For nonviolence not only calls upon its adherence to avoid external physical violence, but it calls upon them to avoid internal violence of spirit. It calls on them to engage in that something called love. And I know it is difficult sometimes. When I say love at this point, I'm not talking about an affectionate emotion. It's nonsense to urge people, oppress people, to love their oppressors in an affectionate sense. I'm talking about something much deeper. I'm talking about a sort of understanding, creative, redemptive goodwill for all men. We are coming to see now, the psychiatrists are saying to us that many of the strange things that happen in the subconscious, many of the inner conflicts are rooted in hate. And so they are saying, love will perish. But Jesus told us this long time ago, and I can still hear that voice crying through the vista of time, saying, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Pray for them that despitefully use you. And that is still a voice saying to every potential Peter, put up your sword. History is replete with the bleached bones of nations. History is cluttered with the wreckage of communities that failed to follow this command. And isn't it marvelous to have a method of struggle where it is possible to stand up against an unjust system Fight it with all of your might, never accept it, and yet not stoop to violence and hatred in the process. This is what we have. Now, that is a magnificent new militancy within the Negro community all across this nation. And I welcome this as a marvelous development. The Negro over America is saying he's determined to be free, and he is militant enough to stand up. But this new militancy must not lead us to the position of distrusting every white person who lives in the United States. There are some white people in this country who are as determined to see the Negro free as we are to be free. This new militancy must be kept within understanding boundaries. And then another thing I can understand, we've been pushed around so long. We've been the victims of lynching mobs so long. We've been the victims of economic injustice so long, still the last tide and the first fight all over this nation. And I know the temptation. I can understand 
from a psychological point of view, why some caught up in the clutches of the injustices surrounding them almost respond with bitterness and come to the conclusion that the problem can't be solved within, and they talk about getting away from it in terms of racial separation. But even though I can understand it psychologically, I must say to you this afternoon that this isn't the way. Black supremacy is as dangerous as white supremacy. No, I hope you will allow me to say to you this afternoon that God is not interested merely in the freedom of black men and brown men and yellow men. God is interested in the freedom of the whole human race. And I believe that with this philosophy and this determined struggle, we will be able to go on in the days ahead transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. As I move toward my conclusion, you are asking, I'm sure, what can we do here in Detroit to help in the struggle in the South? Well, there are several things that you can do. One of them you've done already. And I hope you will do it in even greater dimensions before we leave this meeting. Now the second thing that you can do to help us down in Alabama and Mississippi and all over the South is to work with determination to get rid of any segregation and discrimination in Detroit. Realizing that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And we've got to come to see that the problem of racial injustice is a national problem. No community in this country can boast of clean hands in the area of brotherhood. Now, in the North, is different in that it doesn't have the legal sanction that it has in the South. But it has its subtle and hidden form, and it exists in three areas, in the area of employment discrimination, in the area of housing discrimination, and in the area of de facto segregation in the public schools. And we must come to see that de facto segregation in the North is just as injurious of the actual, as the actual segregation in the South. So if you want to help us in Alabama and Mississippi and over the South, do all that you can to get rid of the problem here. And then we also need your support in order to get the civil rights bill that the President is offering passed. And that's a reality. Let's not fool ourselves. This bill isn't going to get through if we don't put some work in it and some determined pressure. And this is why I've said that in order to get this bill through, we've got to rouse the conscience of the nation, and we ought to march to Washington more than 100,000 in order to save. In 
in order to say that we are determined, and in order to engage in a nonviolent protest to keep this issue before the conscience of the nation. And if we will do this, we will be able to bring that new day of freedom into being. If we will do this, we will be able to make the American dream a reality. And I do not want to give you the impression that it's going to be easy. There can be no great social gain without individual pain. Before the victory for brotherhood is won, some will have to get scarred up a bit. Before the victory is won, some more will be thrown into jail. Before the victory is won, some, like Medgar Evers, may have to face physical death. But if physical death is the price that some must pay to free their children and their white brothers from an eternal psychological death, then nothing can be more redemptive. Before the victory is won, some will be misunderstood and called bad names. But we must go on with the determination and with the faith that this problem can be solved. And so I go back to the South not in despair. I go back to the South not with a feeling that we are caught in a dark dungeon that will never lead to a way out. I go back believing that the new day is coming. And so this afternoon I have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day, right down in Georgia and Mississippi and Alabama, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to live together as brothers. I have a dream this afternoon that one day, one day little white children and little Negro children will be able to join hands as brothers and sisters. I have a dream this afternoon that one day, one day, Men will no longer burn down houses in the church of God simply because people want to be free. I have a dream this afternoon that there will be a day that we will, not long, we will no longer face the atrocities that Emmett Till had to face or Medgar Evers had to face, but that all men can live with dignity. I have a dream this afternoon that my four little children my four little children will not come up in the same young days that I came up within, but they will judge, be judged on the basis of the content of their character, not the color of their skin. I have a dream this afternoon that one day right here in Detroit, Negroes will be able to buy a house or rent a house anywhere that their money will carry them, and they will be able to get a job. Yes, I have a dream this afternoon. One day in this land, the words of Amos will become real. And justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. I have a dream this evening that one day, we will recognize the words of Jefferson that all men are created equal. 
that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I have a dream this afternoon. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, and every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. I have a dream this afternoon that the brotherhood of man will become a reality in this day with this faith. I will go out and carve a tunnel of hope through the mountain of despair with this faith. I will go out with you and transform dark yesterdays into bright tomorrows. With this faith, we will be able to achieve this new day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing with the Negroes in the spiritual of all, free at last, free at last. Thank God Welcome back, and uh, that speech uh, by Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., then president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, was delivered uh, 60 years ago today, uh, June 23rd of 1963, uh, after uh, the great uh, Detroit Walk to Freedom, uh, the largest up until that time uh, civil rights uh, march uh, in the history of uh, the United States, organized and carried out in the city of Detroit, where we're broadcasting from uh, here on Saturday, uh, June 24th, uh, 2023. Uh, my name is Abba And uh, we'll take a break, and we'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Welcome back. That was a uh, melody of um, many songs uh, from uh, Motown Records. And, of course, that was uh, Brenda Holloway. How many times do you mean it? The Motown artist uh, from Los Angeles, California. And also uh, from Inkster, Michigan, right outside the city of Detroit. And first off, uh, the Four Tops, two tracks by them. Uh, Four Tops, of course, being from uh, the city of Detroit. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcasts, and this is uh, Black uh, Music Month uh, 2023. And, uh, of course, uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We want to look back uh, on some aspects uh, of the history of black music uh, in uh, the United States. Let's listen to this phenomenal report. artistic contributions to American culture. Its roots are in the music of Africa, the plantation, the city's ghettos, the church, the nightclub, the theater. Black artists have drawn on all these strains to create a new American music. Jazz, hot and cool, swing, bop, rock and roll, rhythm and blues. Louis Armstrong visited Ghana in West Africa. Black American music returned to the place from which it had come. Thank you. 
first slaves left Africa for the colony of Virginia in 1619. In 1700, Mr. Thomas Starks, a slave dealer in London, directed the captain of the ship Africa to take on a cargo of 450 slaves. He included the typical admonition, make your Negroes cheerful and pleasant, make them dance to the beat of your drum. By 1727, there were 75,000 blacks in the North American colonies. By 1790, there were 10 times that number. By 1800, there were over a million. Blacks now formed nearly 19% of the population of the United States. A naive but well-meaning Thomas Jefferson said, in music, they are generally more gifted than whites, with accurate ears for tune and time. My skin is black And my arms are long Nina Simone sings of black women. My hair is woolly and my back is strong. Strong enough to take all the pain that's been inflicted again and again and again and again and again. What do they call me? My name is Aunt Sarah. My skin is brown. And my manner is tough. Cause I swear I'll kill the first person that messes with me. Cause my life has been too rough. I'm awfully bitter these days Because my parents were slaves What do they call me? Black religious and black secular music have blended. The church was always looked upon as a refuge from the alien white world. 
The spirituals, sometimes called spontaneous generations of song, were sung in marvelous complication and variety. This is Mahalia Jackson, one of the great popularizers of the church sound. By the mid-19th century, there had emerged a growing hope, emancipation, an end to slavery. But still, almost 90% of America's blacks were unfree. In the same boat, brother. We're in the same boat, brother. And if you shake one end, you're gonna rock the other. It's the same boat, brother. Come here, black woman. Uh, don't you hear me crying, oh lordy? singer, B.B. King, sums up the woes of black men everywhere. Like Huddy Ledbetter, better known as Lead Belly, sing protest songs first sung at the turn of the century. Good morning, blue. 
During the gay 90s, ragtime music swept the country. Then, ragtime and blues converged into classic New Orleans jazz, one of the fundamental developments in American music. King Oliver's band and Jelly Roll Morton were pioneers in the jazz sound. America started to export some of its talent. Josephine Baker, daughter of a domestic worker from St. Louis, became the toast of the Folie Berger in Paris. Back home, people listened to the Empress of Blues, Bessie Smith, sing W.C. Handy's classic St. Louis Blues. in 1929 is the only film record of the great Bessie Smith. were abruptly brought to an end by the stock market crash of 1929. A frightening depression followed with its unemployment and bread line. The late 30s and early 40s saw global war. The whole country listened and danced to the music of Count Basie's band. Fame for its pace and vital rhythmic impulse, as well as for its remarkable soloist.
Holiday sang about emotions common to everyone. A noted jazz critic said of her, she's the dark lady of the sonnets. Sometimes you are afraid to listen to this lady, for nothing was more perfect than she was. Love will make you do things that you know is lives on today in the music of B.B. King. Eat 
executive and influential of all the big band leaders and composer arrangers was Edward Duke Ellington. today by jazz artists like Julian Cannonball Adderley with cool jazz instrumentals like Mercy, Mercy. African musical tradition was one of primacy of rhythm, sometimes several rhythms going on simultaneously. It was regarded as music for the dance, although the dance involved was often only a mental one. That same musical tradition lives on today in the contemporary music of groups like Sly and the Family Stone.
Black music in America began as the African drum beat and plantation song, ignored and then suppressed by white culture. Today, as the black man has moved into every sphere of American life, his music has become the dominant music of all America. Simone sums up the pride that black people feel in her unforgettable to be young, gifted, and black.
heart and soul of Africa has been described as a gigantic drum. By the 1970s, the sound of that drum could be heard all over America. It reverberated through the plains, the coastlands, the deltas, and the urban canyons of this country. However, black music was in a holding pattern, as though waiting for the promises of the previous decade to be fulfilled. Against this backdrop, the Motown sound provided the rhythm and the beat. continued, black artists too began to voice their discontent. Edwin Starr demanded, stop the war. Peter Payne wondered when we would bring the boys home. And Marvin Gaye touched on the confusion that surrounded us when he asked us to save the world. Roberta Flack seemed to be singing for all of us when she lamented about the trying times our country faced. continued to nurture his optimism. No one seemed to be listening. And soon artists such as Tina Turner tried to overcome the questioning and the doubts that affected us. You steal my baby. We were her audience, and we were to be entertained. Baby. 
By the time peace finally came, black musicians had begun to appeal directly to our consciousness. According to the OJs, we were to stand up. We were to be counted upon to control our lives. Our strength was in ourselves and in the spiritual force that surrounded us. This force came out of a gospel tradition that underlies most black music. The Dixie Hummingbirds will tell you. The difference in, in rock and gospel is what you have on your mind. Franklin's voice seemed to bridge the past and the future. She sang for black America. Johnson describes what was beginning to take place in American music. People music is music that um, you don't look at it as black or white or anything. It's just music that you like, you know. Just like I like music that some people call white music, but to me it's music. I think it was 1975, and I was uh, planning to take a uh, make a tour in Japan, and I needed a bass player, and I already had a bass player, and somebody told me about Louis Johnson. And uh, out of curiosity, I asked him to come over and let me hear I played. And he brought his brother George with him. As far as I'm concerned, the success part of it, it can only happen once with two forces like ourselves and Quincy Jones. 
We asked George if this overnight success had changed his brothers. Speak honestly, too. Yes, he have changed. He's gotten a lot funkier. Funk is hard to describe. For it is a way of talking. <laughs> if you ever should see a skunk shake his rum, tell him to come over here with us and bring some, uh, what you say, big daddy? Snake punk in the gum, baby. A way of walking? All you got to do is uh, take a closer walking. And we got this that's full of magic tricks. Oh. So come feel if you will, baby, Bob. The magic of the juke uh, show. Oh, we want to play together. A way of spreading your stuff. The guarantee to make you come to me, baby. To set yourself free. Yeah, because my magic wand can do almost anything. Spitting fire, making rain. Most of all, it can make you spread your wings and fly with you. It is low down. It is nitty gritty. influence of black music and other media. During the 70s, a black musical moved on Broadway in a big way to command the attention 
of theater goers. For so many years, um, black shows have not been on Broadway, and all of a sudden there's like seven right now. And um, I think that black people themselves have taken pride in what they are doing and what their culture is all about, what our culture is all about. The Wiz, winner of seven Tony Awards. Ain't misbehaving. Got eight Tony Awards. Yubi, a celebration of the life of the grand old man of music, Yubi Blake. Bubbling Brown Sugar, a feast of songs in spirit and style. in her dramatic film debut as Billie Holiday in Lady Sings the Blues. But God bless the child that's got his own That's got his own You're gonna make million Americans heard Quincy Jones' score when they tuned into Roots, the most successful teleplay of all time. Welcome back. And uh, that was Reflections on the History and Legacy of African Music in the United States. And uh, we're going to be closing out our program. And uh, you've been listening to the Pan-African Journal, this worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And I'm your host, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, today is Saturday, June 24th, 2023. And uh, we've been broadcasting live from studios in downtown Detroit. And if you'd like to have access to this program, all you need to do uh, is go uh, to the Pan-African Radio Network. And that's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. 
That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And if you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire uh, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go to our website, and that is at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out uh, with the music of the legendary jazz guitarist, uh, Grant Green. And uh, this is taken uh, from an album entitled Idle Moments, uh, recorded in 1964. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.
Thank you. 